Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode eight, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1998 horror drama, (laughs) Beloved. Based on the novel by Toni Morrison, it was written by Akashua Busha... And it was directed by Jonathan Demme. The film stars Oprah Winfrey, Tandy Newton, Danny Glover, Kimberly Elise, and Bea Richards. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, great. Then let's get this morning started. So according to Jeff Wells, quote, Toni Morrison made a name for herself with The Bluest Eye, Sula, and Song of Solomon, but it wasn't until 1987's Beloved, about a runaway slave haunted by the death of her infant daughter, that her legacy was secured. The book won the Pulitzer Prize and was a key factor in the decision to award Morrison the Nobel Prize in 1993, unquote. Heartbreakingly, the book is based on a true story. Apparently, Morrison was doing research for another book and found a newspaper article about Margaret Garner, an enslaved woman in Kentucky who escaped with her husband and four children to Ohio in 1856. According to Wells, quote, a posse caught up with Garner, who killed her youngest daughter and attempted to do the same to her other children rather than let them return to bondage. Once apprehended, her trial transfixed the nation. She was very calm. She said, quote, I'd do it again, unquote. Morrison told the Paris Review, that was more than enough to fire my imagination, unquote. Oh, Wow. According to Johanna Desta in an article for Vanity Fair, quote, Winfrey read the book for the first time when it was released in 1987. Desperate to discuss the book with its author and bring up the potential for a movie adaptation, Winfrey set out that same night to find the Morrison's to find Morrison's unlisted number. She settled on an odd solution. She called the fire department in Morrison's New Jersey town and told them to, quote, call Tony and tell her Oprah called, unquote. (laughs) Oh, wow. Can you imagine? (laughs) Morrison called her back that evening and they discussed the the film adaptation and it was pretty much settled that night. But the movie itself would take much longer to produce. Apparently, all of the studios that Oprah pitched the film to were not willing to take it, and it would take 11 years for the film to finally get a script written and a director approved. Oprah chose Jonathan Demme, who was hot off his success with The Silence of the Lambs, which we have an episode on, and Philadelphia. 
According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, there was a conflict over screenplay credit with actor-writer Akasua Busha demanding sole credit and saying that the other credited writers, Adam Brooks and Richard Lagravancy, got too much. The Writers Guild of America gave credit to all three, but Busha said that the two men were all little more than script doctors. So, yeah, that's why at the beginning of the episode, I only gave credit to her because F that. (laughs) It was eventually picked up by Touchstone Pictures, which was created and owned by the Walt Disney Studios, with Oprah's production company Harpo Pictures also producing, and was given a budget of $55 million. However, the film was poorly received, earning only $21 million the first month it was in theaters. That's pretty bad. (laughs) What? That's... Wow. Yeah. I would not expect that. I know. Hmm. According to Desta, quote, the film has been reconsidered in the years since then with critics looking back to examine its cultural value and assess whether it was unfairly judged in 1998. In retrospect, Winfrey herself has said that the movie was ahead of its time and that its release taught her a lesson about placing unrealistic expectations on box office returns. She said, quote, it taught me to never again, never again, ever put all of your hopes, expectations, eggs in the basket of the box office. Do the work as an offering and then whatever happens, happens. And she told this to British Vogue in 2017. To Nana Reeve Du, who you might recognize from the horror noir documentary on Shudder, says this about Beloved, quote, In her use of a ghost to embody the child murdered by her mother to prevent the infant from falling into slavery, Morrison created a metaphor so powerful that Jonathan Demme's film adaptation is almost too painful to watch despite its cinematic beauty and earnest casting of Oprah Winfrey, Danny Glover, and the introduction of Tandy Newton. Beloved helps us feel... Uh, at least a sliver of what it would have felt like to live with that guilt and trauma, which is so hard to put into everyday words. Horror's visceral nature makes it the perfect genre for such a story, unquote. And according to Robin R. Means Coleman, the author behind the book, Horror Noir, which the documentary is based off of, quote, as much as this is about black horror films. It's also about recognizing and recentering black women. Black women are at every point. There's Toni Morrison, Oprah Winfrey, and the screenwriter, Akasua Busha. This is a black female filmmaker project. Jonathan Demi directs it, and we often talk about that, but everything else comes out of Winfrey's production company. It stars black women. It's their story. It's their truth as first imagined by Toni Morrison. So, In that way, it's important. In that way, it's canonical. And in that way, we must not ever forget this film, unquote. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Setha is a former enslaved woman living near Cincinnati, Ohio, shortly after the Civil War. An angry poltergeist, thought to be one of Setha's dead children, residing in the family home, terrorizes Setha and her three living children, two boys and a girl, Denver, an act which causes the boys to run away forever. Eight years later, Setha lives alone with her daughter, Denver. Paul D., a former enslaved friend from Sweet Home, the plantation Setha had escaped from years earlier, finds Setha's home, where he drives off the angry spirit that inhabits it. 
Afterwards, Paul D. proposes that he should stay, and Setha responds favorably. Shortly after Paul D. moves in, a seemingly mentally handicapped woman named Beloved wanders her way to Setha's home, and she's taken in by the family. Denver loves having Beloved in the house, relieved to have some outside company, but she learns that Beloved is actually Setha's deceased baby daughter, but she keeps it a secret. One night, Beloved makes her way into the shed where Paul D. sleeps, and she sexually assaults him. He wants to tell Setha what happened, but cannot, and instead asks Setha to have a baby with him. Hearing that Paul D. wants to have a baby with Setha, his co-worker pulls him aside and shows him a newspaper article about Setha's past. Years before, after Setha was sexually assaulted and had her breast milk stolen by the school teacher's nephews, she ran away to escape their cruelty along with her children. At the time, she had been pregnant and given birth to Denver while on the run. For 28 days, she was free with her family, but on the 29th day, the school teacher came back to claim Setha's children. Rather than have them forced back into slavery, she attempts to kill her children, only injuring the boys but slitting the throat of her toddler. Defeated and in shock, the schoolteacher leaves Setha. Paul D. tells Setha that she loves her children too much, and in defense of her actions, Setha tells him that her children would have been better off dead than face the tortures of slavery. Paul D. leaves the home, and Setha comes to the realization that Beloved is her dead daughter, reincarnated. As time goes on, Beloved becomes more destructive and takes to destroying Setha's home in fits of rage, and eventually, Setha becomes too sick to work and the women begin to starve. Denver takes it upon herself to find employment from the other women in town, and soon after, finds basket of food left, baskets of food left by the generous community that surrounds Setha's house. The women who once shamed Setha for her actions develop an understanding for her needs and behavior, and make their way to the house to perform an exorcism and rid the women of the parasitic spirit of Beloved, who is taking everything they have. As the women converge on the home and begin singing their hymns to drive the dark spirit away, Setha has a flashback to the day that, her, to the, day that the school teacher tried to take her children from her. She storms out of the house with an ice pick, ready to stab someone, but she is held by Denver and the women. In the midst of all the chaos, Beloved disappears, seemingly exercised from their lives. After the incident, further down the road, Paul D. and Denver run into each other at the marketplace. He remarks about Denver's adult nature and asks if it's alright for him to stop by to see Setha. When he arrives, he finds Setha lethargic with no lust for life. She tells Paul D. that there's no point in living because her best thing is gone, but he reassures her that she is her own best thing, and that now she's the one who will be taken care of. Oh, Thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You're welcome. It's so sad. <laughs> this movie is a wild ride, and at the end, you just want to cry yourself to sleep. I mean, it's a real big bummer. It's a huge bummer. Real big bummer. (laughs) It is, but it's an important film. So. It is. It is. We're going to talk about it. Let's start with the Bechdel test, as always. Yes, it passes a few times. That's because this is a woman film. Like, there's so many women in this, and they all have names, and it's amazing. Yes. Okay, so Nancy's dream team test. Was the sporting cast at least 50% women? Yes, it was. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? Yes. 
Akasua Busha was the head writer for the screenplay. Also, there was Oprah Winfrey and Kate Forte, who produced the film. And, uh, oh, yeah, the soundtrack was composed by Rachel Portman. And the film was edited by Carol Littleton. Yes, that's incredible. It is incredible. Okay, so was the final girl or main character a person of color? Yes. Yay. And were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Mm. All right. So I want to say right off the bat, most of our resources, at least for this first topic that we're about to discuss, came from Ellen Scott's amazing essay called The Horrors of Remembrance, The Altered Visual Aesthetic of Horror in Jonathan Demme's Beloved. I highly recommend y'all read it. It's so good. And link is always is in the show notes. Uh, so let's get started. Let's talk about the horror of the past, trauma, ghosts, and slavery. Uh, Tanana Reeve Du has this to say about horror. For many Black horror fans, I think the love of horror, whether or not the characters are Black, is rooted in the desire to process and escape trauma. I didn't realize it as a child, but I now believe my mother's love of horror was directly related to her activism during the civil rights movement in Florida, unquote. And according to Donye Coles, quote, it is a horror film that treats the violence of slavery and the effects it has on the psyche of the people who endured it as horror, much in the same way that Get Out treated racism as a source of horror. But where Jordan Peele crafted his story through layers of metaphor and satire, the horror in Beloved is visceral and real. The horror is history, and the supernatural is a metaphor for handling the real trauma that results from it. There is nothing in it that is for shock value. There is no romancing of the bones of the story. It is beautifully shot and atmospheric, but remains a brutal and haunting tale. It deals with slavery, but it is about black trauma presented in a non-sensational manner, despite its supernatural elements, which is uncommon for a genre film. There are no voodoo priests or ancient curses. There is only the horror that was done to Setha, the horror of that she acted out in return and the terrible reality of living with that or not living with that, unquote. And I want to end this with uh, something that Greedy Hendrix, who is a horror author, uh, has to add about the story and how it has to deal with trauma and, uh, and, of course, ghost stories in general. And Hendrix says, ghost stories are about one thing, the past. Even the language we use to talk about the past is the language of horror. Memories haunt us. We conjure up the past. We exorcise our demons. Beloved is a classic ghost, all-consuming. She is the sins of Setha's past coming not just to accuse her, but to destroy her. There has been an argument made that Beloved is just a traumatized former slave that Setha projects this ghostly identity onto, but Morrison is unambiguous. Morrison says, I realize that the only person really in a place to judge the woman's action would be the dead child, but she couldn't lurk outside the book. I could use the supernatural as a way of explaining or exploring the memory of these events, you can't get away from this bad memory because she is here sitting at the table talking to you. No matter what anybody says, she will 
says, we all know that there are ghosts, unquote. I think that that is part of what's so brilliant and moving about this story. And we talk about this in other episodes that deal with the supernatural, but, you know, sometimes we just cannot explain things. Sometimes our humanity gets the best of us and comes back to haunt us in ways that are mind-bending and so scary, and there's no other way to describe it. And that fear is recognizable in all of us. It's something that everyone experiences probably more than once in their lifetime because trauma has lasting effects on the human psyche. So when we read a story like Beloved, that fear becomes relatable and recognizable and it becomes a way to tell other human beings about a feeling that can't quite be defined by, well, obviously you're defining it by words, but like there's no science or tangible proof. It's more of an emotion. You know, didn't you, didn't we talk about this in our Get Out episode about how trauma can be inherited? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, and there, the study that we talked about that I brought up in that episode, I'm pretty sure is included in the show notes for Get Out. But um, we talk about how it's the trauma is passed down epigenetically. Yes. And there's like actual scientific proof for that. So whatever someone's ancestors experienced, like th- that's part of your genetic makeup. That it's part, it becomes a part of who you are. And like, that's, it's really not that difficult to see, especially in modern times with everything that's going on. Like, mm. right. Like, my making it a horror film, which it most definitely is, like, we are able to experience like the terrible, terrible traumas f- through a film about what had happened to people then. Because too many films look at the traumas and the horrors of slavery in kind of like a kitty kind of disney like way yeah i mean we just talked about it via text the other day gracie and i were talking to each other about how like when you're in school or like, if you didn't go to a school that really looked at the realness of slavery, you you don't understand how bad it was until maybe you're older and you see movies like this or, you know, like Get Out or 12 Years a Slave even. Like, you just don't really grasp the full horror of what they went through. And I was lucky enough to go to a school with teachers who didn't sugarcoat any of this stuff you know like they they definitely made it known for what it was and you know when I got older and I was in college learning about the civil war and in classes with kids who went to other schools like all these people were so shocked to learn about the atrocities that came with slavery and I was just kind of like amazed at how little people knew really so right it's it's bananas and um i think when i saw roots and when i read this book i was like on the floor i couldn't i i couldn't believe it i i was ignorant to the 
to the real, real true horrors. Like it wasn't just, um, oh, they worked in the fields for 12 hours a day and it was super hot. No, they were fucking raped. And like their children were stolen from them and their children were killed in front of them. Like it's horrific. And um, it's amazing. You're right. It's amazing how so many people don't know that that happened. And so I think that this film is the way that it handles the traumas and the ghosts of the past and how they talk about it. I think they do a really good job. And um, if you are a person of color, uh, we would love to hear your thoughts about this film. Yeah. Um, Hendrix actually continues and says, quote, what Morrison wants to do, as she puts it, is make her character's experiences felt. The problem was the terror, she said in an interview. I wanted it to be truly felt. I wanted to translate the historical into the personal. I spent a long time trying to figure out what it was about slavery that made it so repugnant. Let's get rid of these words like the slave woman and the slave child and talk about people with names like you and like me who were there. Now, what does slavery feel like? Unquote. So I think that that's exactly what this, her book and what the film does. Okay, so this goes with our current topic here. So let's try to answer the question, who slash what is beloved? Setha's daughter that she killed was never given a name, unlike her two older sons, Howard and Bugler, and her youngest daughter, Denver, who was named after Amy Amy Denver, the woman who helped Setha give birth. So beloved, who was actually nicknamed Crawling Already by Baby Suggs, who is her grandmother, is essentially nameless when she dies. Her tombstone, at least we assume it's her tombstone at the beginning of the film, says that she is beloved. And the physical manifestation of beloved says that was her name, quote unquote, in the dark. And I guess that would mean her name when she was underground, like buried underground. Mm, Okay. Um, Ellen Scott says, quote, her heavy gasping breath, her slurred moaning speech, her noisy sloppy eating and her demonically low voice all cause us to associate her with the basic bodily functions she has not yet mastered. Her body literally creaks, moans, gurgles, and groans, but these sounds have no reasonable source. They bubble forth from an unknown, untold internal location. They are not synchronized with her mouth and therefore appear extra diegetic, although it is always her presence that catalyzes them. Beloved's appearance also crucially ushers in another sonic motif, the sound of buzzing bees or flies, we cannot tell which. We see neither bees nor flies on the image track in these scenes, although the soundtrack renders them swarms. The ambiguity of the source of the buzzing may itself be metaphorically significant, as bees are attracted to the sweetness of pollen and flies to its opposite. The stench of death, both of which are characteristics associated with Beloved's form, unquote. So it's clear at least to me, that Beloved is, in fact, the nameless baby daughter that Setha murdered in the shed. And she has come back in sort of this beautiful zombie form at the age that she would have been if she had not died. And she still has this baby-like skin and talks as if she is a baby. But, you know, I think Beloved is more than this. 
Like, she represents much more, as Morrison stated earlier. And according to Ellen Scott, quote, symbolically, Beloved's fleshly resurrection works to make her a cipher and symbol of the repressed, of slavery. To represent Beloved as spirit alone would be to leave her unbound to the predominant site for the etching of slavery's oppression and domination, the body, unquote. And Scott then continues and says, quote, most crucially, it is slavery rather than a monster or a spirit that is the central horror of Beloved. But the film reveals slavery as both institutional and oppressive, as a horror machine, one productive of other horrors, many of which, ghosts, monsters, victims, are typical of the genre. The film introduces a chain of horrors, all of which can be linked back to slavery, unquote. Yeah, I mean, I I think there are more than a few layers to Beloved. Um, in a way, she is a personalization of Setha's own inner demons. Like, right. Setha can't, she can't stop punishing herself for what she's done. And that guilt takes a toll on her relationships with everyone else in her life. But Beloved is a manifestation of everyone else's fears or traumas also. Like, mm -hmm. for Denver... She fears that she's losing her family mm. and, you know, Beloved becomes kind of like a burden to Setha that eventually, you know, that happens because Setha gets sick and she can't take care of anybody. And Right, that's true. Like Denver's brothers run away, baby Suggs dies, and so Denver you know, thinks that her father's going to maybe someday come back and towards like the middle of the film we find out that he's never coming back and then um and then paul d shows up and he's not really family he's just a friend and so it's like he's almost like a threat so when beloved shows up it's yeah it's like it's different until yeah. until it's not yeah absolutely and i mean when paul d has his sexual encounter with beloved he has to relive the tortures that he was a part of back in Sweet Home. So she represents so many things in this story to the characters, but also in the history of slavery and its horrors. Like, how many babies ended up like Beloved? How many enslaved people suffered at the hands of slavery but were lost or forgotten to time and became these ghostly memories? Like it really puts into perspective how much the horrors of slavery branch out and how deep the roots really go. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, it's awful. Okay, so let's talk about Beloved as a gothic tale. According to Sumoko Solson in their article, African American Folklore, Magical Realism, and Horror in Toni Morrison Novels, Quote, the story utilizes many elements of the subgenre American Gothic. English Gothic horror took place in the Victorian era, the same period of time that the Civil War and the post-war restoration took place in the United States. The dark histories involving the African slave trade and the genocide of New World's indigenous peoples were primary features of a guilt-ridden American conscience, unquote. 
And yeah. And according (laughs) to Ashley Blackwell in their article, Horror in the 90s, the Southern Gothic, quote, although the film takes place in rural Ohio, a Southern Gothic tradition of wide open outdoors spaces surrounded by nature and minimal technology, fragmented bodies, spirits, and low functioning characters that drive the story sums up a wealth of the plot and setting of Beloved, unquote. And then, according to Ellen Scott, the Gothic was, crucially, in its, early liter- in its early literary beginnings, largely a female genre. Because not only were women its principal consumers, but also, quite often, its chief protagonists. This stands in contrast to much of the rest of contemporary horror, which has tended to emphasize female moral deviancy, otherness, and abjection. The genre genre was also the literature noir of the Enlightenment's bright light, painting in doubt and shadows the same landscape that the Enlightenment had boldly illuminated. By linking together the family, incest, sexuality, and death through the metaphor of the dark family secret, American Gothic writing further suggested a lingering, subversive presence in the midst of American puritanical iterations of Victorian purity, unquote. And I think those are all great arguments that Beloved is a gothic tale. And I think as a society, unfortunately, people of color get excluded from all things gothic. Um, I agree. And it's an issue because a lot of the hauntings that have begun in America were due in large part to the slave trade. Yes. Beside the death of thousands of Native Americans and the ostracizing of women believed to be witches and the numerous wars we've been in, all of those things are related. Like, Southern Gothics came to be because of a sense of overwhelming agony at the hands of white masters. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense to have so many stories that only feature white characters. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that out of this realization, there will be an emergence of more black stories and particularly hauntings, because as we've learned in the past, Horror is a great way to crack open a subject and start talking about it. And I think that until we start doing that and acknowledging the horrors of everyday life that black people went through, we aren't going to reach an understanding here and now. And that's why it's so important for gothics to come from black voices Yeah, absolutely. So let's also talk about the haunted home. And, you know, what would a gothic tale be without a space-specific horror in it? Mm -hmm. And most gothic (laughs) novels take place in some sort of castle or manor where the horrors take place, whether they're supernatural or not. Uh, 124 Bluestone Road and Sweet Home fit this quite well. Scott says, quote, Beloved centers on a pair of homes that are gothically horrible, both in their architectural form and their allegorical significance. Sweet Home, the plantation that Setha escapes from, is where Setha's maternal body is abused, robbed of its sexual autonomy and its milk, and is where the black nuclear family is destroyed, unquote. 
And Scott continues, quote, the Gothic home is tirelessly linked with the ghost and the flesh of Beloved. It is the first and only site of Beloved's haunting, the place where she is given her fullest expression. This is where I am. And the place where she looks for Setha. I look for this place and eventually possesses her. Indeed, once in the flesh, Beloved virtually never leaves the home. Only once does she go outside its gates, and even then only to meet Setha. Significantly, Beloved's haunting is staged first and primarily in the kitchen, the hearth of the home, its center of production and confection, and a realm typically designated female. The home is also rendered female in that it hosts the sort of intense physical and emotional embrace that is singularly maternal. It is womb-like. It is used to possess, nurture, connect, and monitor those it contains. As Setha once held Beloved in the womb, here Beloved holds Setha in the home, unquote. I love this. Yeah. And I really love the connection they make to the kitchen also because it is a place of nourishment. And Setha is also a cook. Yes. Like she, she cooks in a restaurant as her job. And it's almost as if she is reclaiming the right to nourish her children after her milk is taken from her. Ooh, and we'll, we'll get into that again in just a second. Yeah. And towards the end of the story, when Beloved is taking so much from Setha, the women begin to starve. Just like your grief and your guilt can starve you of your healing. And then, you know, Denver gets this chance to become who she really is and find her place. And she takes charge because her mother is literally sick and dying. Mm -hmm. Like, there's this give and take among the women, like this passing of energy that happens in the house that is really thoughtful and fascinating. And there's a lot of life and death happening in spite of the resistance to change. And the change comes no matter what. And so does the passing on of this energy from mother to daughter and back again. So it's really cool. It's it's kind of a unique look at what happens. Like, when you have these female relationships. I just really love it. Absolutely. And that bleeds really well into our next topic, which is mothers, daughters, and milk in Beloved. So the story is definitely about a mother, but more so about a mother and her relationship with both of her daughters and then vice versa, as well as that mother's relationship with her own mother, as well as her mother-in-law. Okay, so let's start with Setha and her daughters. There's one daughter that is alive, and there's one that is dead. The two sons are gone from the film almost immediately. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> within, like, the first five minutes, they are out of the film. <laughs> yes. And we never see them again. I mean, Setha does envision their return when they grow up, and we see flashbacks of them when they're younger, but that, as characters, they're pretty much gone from the film. Yeah. According to Ellen Scott, quote, Howard and Bugler are driven away from the home by the ghost, or perhaps more by their mother's unwillingness to stand up to the ghost. Never to return, and Denver is left alone with her mother and her sister's ghost in the house, unquote. So before, Denver had her brothers and Grandma Baby, who's Baby Suggs, to lean on. But now with only her mother and dead sister, Denver is beyond lonely. And according to Deborah Tambun, quote, 
In her private practice, Ronnie Conan Sandler, PhD, psychologist and co-author of I'm Not Mad, I Just Hate You, a new understanding of mother-daughter conflict, <laughs> Woo, okay. sees three primary complaints that daughters have about their mothers. Mothers try to parent them, and they are overly critical and demanding. From the mother's perspective, daughters don't listen to them. They make poor choices and have no time for them. So that's kind of interesting. Almost in her whole life, Setha is still haunted by the feeling of guilt and sinfulness because of killing her daughter. This kind of feeling makes her become protective of Denver, unquote. And we'll get more into Denver and Beloved's relationship in the final thought. But at first, Denver is thrilled to have a a physical manifestation of her sister there to keep her company. Until she realizes that Beloved is destroying not only her already rocky relationship with her mother, but sucking her mother drier than she did when she was still a ghost, so to speak. And metaphorically, any milk that Setha might have had for Denver is being taken away by the spirit of Beloved. Mm. Incidentally, any quote-unquote milk that Setha had for herself is also gone. As someone who is currently breastfeeding, you have to do like a lot of self-care for yourself in order to produce milk. Like you have to eat an extra meal a day, rest as much as possible and hydrate often in order to produce a healthy quantity of milk. So Setha is unable to also care for herself because of Beloved's vampiric nature. So she's unable to give Denver and herself what she needs because of Beloved. Oof. And uh, it might be kind of hard to talk about, too, but I really don't think it was any mistake that the filmmakers planned that shot after Setha kills Beloved, and she's got her, like, clutched to her chest right by her breast, and there's blood everywhere. It's so symbolic of everything, of black mothers being killed or separated from their babies of not being allowed to nurse their children or even have a relationship with them and it is so horrific and sad but in setha's mind it is more horrific to let her daughter go through what she had to you know you're right and it's not shown in the movie but it is in the book that setha nurses denver after the incident and she's still wearing the blood of Beloved on her breasts. Oh! So Denver ends up drinking the blood of her dead sister while she's also drinking her mother's milk. And wow. the milk that she used to share with Beloved, or Crawling Already, it's now solely Denver's. Because Crawling Already, aka De- uh, Beloved, is dead. And, I mean, you can kind of see why Beloved is so resentful towards Denver in the film she's the sister that got to live and drink the milk Mm. and that's great that you mentioned the terrible hardships that black mothers dealt with during slavery because there's this article that I found called mother-daughter relationship psychological implication of love in Toni Morrison's beloved and in it the author says quote motherhood posed great challenges to african-american women under slavery as reflected in literary works by black writers 
Black mothers lost the opportunity and freedom to perform roles of caregivers to their children. Instead, their children's milk was appropriated under very humiliating and intolerable conditions to nourish white babies whose mothers were incapacitated. As victims of such humiliating and shameful experiences, the black women, realizing the implication of the situation to their sex, developed survival strategies to protect themselves and their female children. This resulted in some very strange relationships between mothers and their daughters, unquote. Ugh. And, you know, this sort of reminds me of Setha's relationship with her own mother. She didn't even really know who her mother was until she pulled her to the side and was like, hey, just so you know, you're my daughter and you can always tell I'm your mother by this mark I have on my body. And um, that's really the only indication she has with her interaction she has with her mother because her her mom has distanced herself from her because if she becomes too attached or if Setha becomes too attached, when one of them dies or is tragically sold to someone else, like the pain is easier to bear. And it's so heartbreaking. And like I, I can't even like get my brain to like understand it because it's, it's so monstrous to do that to someone And that is the reality of what white people did to black mothers. Like, they tore them apart from their children and killed them. I mean, fuck. It's awful. Well, and it's... I mean, look at it now, too, from a modern standpoint. Like, (laughs) white people are still taking black mothers' children away from them. Yeah. Like, where, where do you think that came from? That didn't just, like, pop up out of nowhere. This is all stemming from slavery, and this is why I get so frustrated when people are like, that was hundreds of years ago. Like, okay, but this shit still happens. Yes. And it's it's appalling. Yes. Like, ugh. Yes, and I want to go back to what you said about Setha making being a cook and making food for her children. Mm. I noticed that Setha is making biscuits for her and Denver while she is talking to Paul D about the horrors of what happened to her at Sweet Home. When school teacher and his nephews, they had raped her and beat her and stole her milk. Normally, when you make biscuits, you make them with milk. Mm-hmm. But she's not using milk. She's using water. So she's telling the story about how her milk for her daughter at the time, her only daughter was beloved and how her milk for her daughter is taken from her while she is now making a meal that requires milk, but she has none. So she uses water instead. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like that's a real deep cut right there. Like milk is usually a sign of good health for a family and, of course, there is some unhealthy, repressed emotions and trauma in this family. So there's that. And I also, mother's milk and breastfeeding in general help create a bond between mother and child. And that bond is destroyed between Setha and her daughters and her sons, for that matter. It's almost like the moment they steal her milk is the moment things start to fall apart between her and her children, like metaphorically. You know, that is so wild, too. I, like, this just popped into my brain. But even, like, 
how much we have appropriated from black people down to the food that we make. Like, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of it, you might not even know this. You might not know it if you haven't worked in the food industry or like you don't really have an interest in food culture. But, um, like a lot of these quote unquote like food hacks that we use have come from black people being enslaved and having to make do with literal scraps of what white people have given them. Yes. And now we've like, we've even taken that culture and we've made it white. And it's like, like nothing. We're such leeches. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. uh, It makes me so upset. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. I want to add one last little section to this topic. Setha's only mother figure is her mother-in-law, Baby Suggs. And I think that that's interesting because normally, you know, normally, I guess, a woman is at odds with her mother-in-law. Like, there's that whole, like, monster-in-law attitude. It's toxic, but it is a thing. And um, I think that it's interesting because when... Setha's husband loses his mind and he never makes it to Ohio, sadly. Setha relies on his mother for help in raising their children. So mm-hmm. baby Suggs is is Setha's mother, basically, or and a second mother to her children. Um, she is also a preacher. And so she's not only a surrogate mother to Setha, but to the entire community in the Cincinnati yeah. area. And it's more so when she dies and not even so much when Beloved is killed that the community starts to fall apart. So the communal mother who has held everyone together, when she is gone, all of her children, so to speak, are left astray and they're pitted against each other. It's so heartbreaking. Like the last little thing that these people had is just gone right this communal mother is gone (sighs) yeah so let's get into our final thought which is sisters and sisterhood aka the 30 women and beloved so let's first discuss beloved and denver's relationship according to author su lin yu quote like the mother-daughter relationship, the sister bond is important throughout a woman's life and influences dramatically the way women relate to their peers. Indeed, sisterhood both hides and reveals the ambivalence of lateral family relationships, the lifelong influence of sisters upon female identity, the complex mechanisms of identification between sisters, the taboo of rivalry and competition among women, and the haunting specter of power relations among women the sister is a very important figure in a woman's development and women without sisters often describe the lack as significant so this bond is at first inseparable and denver for the first time ever learns to take care of someone other than herself and i guess her mother And even then, her mother takes care of her. Like, she doesn't really even take care of herself. Like, it's her mother and baby Suggs. Mm -hmm. And um, even then, she looks to Beloved to fill the emotional void that she has from being alone. So Denver's arc is to learn Mm self-sufficiency. And uh, Su Lin Yu goes on and says... 
though Denver attempts to locate her subjectivity in her relationship with Beloved, however, as her sister gradually turns into a figure of a threatening other, Beloved must be sacrificed so that Denver may become socially integrated by establishing a closer relationship with the women of her community. Morrison's ideal of Black sisterhood does not merely offer an alternative to the individualism and autonomy privileged by classical psychoanalysis. According to this revised version, Black female subjectivity is constructed not only in relation to the mother, but to the sister and a larger communal sisterhood, unquote. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's interesting that Setha had 28 blissful days of freedom where she had all of her children around her and everyone was happy. And then on the 29th day, school teacher and his nephews arrive and their arrival drives Setha to kill her daughter and attempt to kill her other three babies. And um, she is then shunned by the community. But at the end of the film, when everyone sort of realizes that maybe it's time to get their acts together and help her in Denver... 30 women from the community show up and try to exercise Beloved from the house. And when Mr. Bodwin appears, or Bodwin, whatever his name is, who Setha thinks is school teacher, she tries to attack and kill him. Instead, the women hold her close and like hug her and pray over her, freeing her from her trauma, fear, and anger, at least in that moment. I love that. Yes, that's one of the best scenes in in the film. And so to me, the 30 women sort of represent the 30th day. Like the day day when she could start to heal. And these women, I'm positive, are all former enslaved women. So they understand all of the horrors that Setha has endured. And they become the new family, the sisterhood that Setha and Denver need. While the ghostly sister, who represents the horrors of the past, disappears. And Mm -hmm. Setha learns to love herself. And that her daughter wasn't her everything, as Paul D. confirms. Like, she, Setha herself, is her everything. And I think this helps Denver see, too, that you shouldn't hold on to something or someone who is gone. You shouldn't live for the dead because the dead are dead. They're not there to live with you. So at least that's the message that I feel Morrison is expressing here. Mm -hmm. And I think she has created a story about finding your community as well, a sisterhood, like after experiencing such trauma and loss. And as Maddie Stanfield says, quote, these women have joined as one to save this family from being completely consumed by a heritage of savagery, pain, sadness, and trauma. And Stanfield also says, quote, as desperately as Setha and Denver want Beloved to fit into their world, it is a losing battle and a desire that can never be fulfilled, unquote. Uh, But what can be fulfilled is the sisterhood presented by the 30 women who come to cast out Beloved from 124 Bloomstone Road. So I think that's a really powerful message. Yeah, I think it's also great that it becomes a group of women surrounding and uplifting other women because for the entirety of Setha's life, she has been used, abandoned, or let down by men. Literally all of them. Yes, and she feels this huge gap in her development as a person of 
not really having a mother and the grief of losing her mother-in-law after all that she'd endured. And I think that there's a collective female energy that needs to be felt in order to lift you back up when you go through something like that. And it's becoming a more common theme, like Midsummer, for example, like that that was one that really sticks out to me. And um, there's a bond of sisterhood that gets you through the grief and the trauma when you can be surrounded by a bunch of women who want to see you heal and who want you to be okay. And that togetherness is what gets humans through a lot of heartache. You know what I think the one little difference is, though, between Midsummer and this film is that the grieve, the grieving the um that the women do with Danny mm-hmm. is not really sincere they are yeah. they are tr- helping her to grieve by mimicking her pain which yeah. help, which helps her express herself this however is women who know a very similar pain that Setha has gone through not all of them have killed their children but mm, yeah you know a lot of them probably know what it is like to lose children yes so they have a bond that is real yeah and it goes a lot deeper actually and it goes much deeper yes yeah wow. wowie well <laughs> that's it for this week's episode of good morning nancy let's talk about some good things that have been happening lately because yikes <laughs> yeah yikes is right um this the recording of this episode coincided really well with the fact that I was sorry somebody's I think an animal just like pounced off of my door cool <laughs> you know it was just great timing I finally got prescribed freaking anti antidepressants yes and sleep medication <laughs> good <laughs> so um that's been helping a lot and you know, if you feel like, here I go again, freaking mental health advocate that I am, but if you feel like you could benefit from something like that, please do it because it will change your life. It will. Like, as, as someone who was also on antidepressants, like, I felt like I could finally function, like a cloud yes. sort of lifted off of me and I was able to like see clearly and I think so many people feel like that by taking antidepressants like you're numbing your emotions no 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 I don't think that's true I feel like I can feel I feel more almost but in a positive way like I'm able to feel things but I'm also able to get through them if that makes sense so 100% and there's nothing wrong with you no like seriously like it's just a help you know it's just a it's just a chemical imbalance in your brain like and you're fine it doesn't make you any less human it doesn't make you weak no absolutely not so So. get out there and get those happy pills (laughs) i'm so happy that you're feeling better abby (laughs) thank you me too how about you well i started reading for fun again Yay! I know that sounds like a really little thing, but I have not read for fun in seven months. 
Oh my God. So yeah, I'm actually reading a Grady Hendrix book. I'm reading the Southern Book Club's Guide to Vampire Slaying. I think that's what it's called. Oh, heck yeah. (laughs) I wanted to read that. Oh my God. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really good. It's a really easy read. I read it for about 30 minutes a day. So, and I... I'm not a fast reader. Like I like to take my time with books unless, mm-hmm. unless it's like super good and I can't put it down. Um, but like I, I read it during my son's nap time. So like I take 30 minutes and that's what I, I read. And then I, I do other stuff after that, but I make sure I take 30 minutes and do that. And I also yes. take 30 minutes a day to walk. And oh, you got to. You gotta. <laughs> and I put my son in a stroller and I put on a podcast, which I also haven't really been listening to in like seven months. So like listening to podcasts again is great. Yeah. Um. So I put on a podcast or call one of my sisters and I put the kid in the stroller and we go for a walk and at least 30 minutes. So today was an hour. So it was awesome. Ooh, those are the best. Yeah. When you're just feeling good and you're like. Freaking moving my body, doing my thing, and uh. yes, and I live near a cemetery or a graveyard. I I, le- I just learned the difference the other day, and I can't remember what it is. But oh, well. I live near, <laughs> I live near a bunch of dead people, so I Perfect. like to go walk there. So it's been great. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy. Like yes. sunshine, fresh air. That's the shit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, let us know what your happy thing is going on, everybody. Please. Please. (laughs) I beg you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Write us a message on social media and let us know how you are handling the end times. (laughs) So (laughs) the apocalypse. We want to know. Uh, Just an update on our Patreon. If you are a new patron, we won't be sending out any gifts until most of this COVID-19 thing is over. So please, new patrons, hang tight. I'll make sure to send out your gifts as soon as possible. However, you can also show your support for the show by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you right to our shop. Oh, and please consider donating what you can to the Black Lives Matter movement as well as to Trans Lifeline. Links, as always, are in the show notes of this episode. Yes, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.